I invite you to open your Bible to the book of Mark. We started a study in the book of Mark a semester ago and, and haven't been back in a while. And so it's time to get things going again in the book of Mark. And we left this fast-paced gospel off at chapter 3, verse 6. And so we pick up right where we left off in Mark 3, 7. I would summarize, but there's too much. So what has happened so far? Jesus has been announced as the Son of God by John the Baptist. And he has demonstrated in the initial days of his ministry up in the north of of Palestine that he is the Son of God with power and authority. And he has come with one intention in demonstrating that power and authority to announce the gospel of God. The coming of the kingdom of God is at hand. And he's proving that in his healing powers, in his exorcisms of demons. And it's there that we leave the story off. We saw several episodes of controversy, of Jesus stirring up, uh, fomenting trouble with the religious leaders of his day. And now we're starting to see Jesus uh, become more and more the object of the Pharisees' hatred and of their... Uh, guile. And so after several episodes of controversial interaction between Jesus and his followers and the religious rulers of his day, Mark now has a moment to kind of describe where the ministry is going. This is a movement in the gospel of Mark to give us the next section of the story as he ministers further in Galilee, the northern area of Israel. He's not yet on his way down south to Jerusalem where he will be arrested and killed. But still early on, at the outset of his ministry, he's, he's setting things in order. And Mark wants us to note in this paragraph, starting in verse 7, all the way down to verse 19, two prevalent crowds and, and those within them. It's, it's hard to imagine this scene especially in 2021 when, when crowds are frowned upon and rare, uh, unless you're in Texas or Florida. Uh, but you understand there's different kinds of crowds. And what's happening in this passage is there's a massive crowd from all over the area, from an international kind of crowd that are, are being drawn and, and gathered to Jesus. And then from that crowd... Jesus is going to call out a special group of disciples and identify them. And and that's simply what's happening in this text today. And it's one of those passages that's... When you're studying the Bible, there's certain passages that are like untangling uh, your daughter's necklaces, which I've done before. I have several daughters and they have many necklaces. And and I don't know, I don't wear necklaces because I'm not Jeremy Volo, but... um, (laughs) If I did, I, I don't know how it happens, but the necklaces get real, real tangled. And, and I actually kind of enjoy untangling those tiny chains. It's, it's a dad job, and I'm not great at it, but I, I don't hate doing it. it it's just it's a puzzle for me. Some passages in the Bible are like those necklaces, all tied together and complicated. This isn't that, but this is one of those passages that it's easy to just cruise over because it doesn't seem like there's much happening here or much to be gained from it. It's just a description of of crowds and then a calling of the disciples. 
But what you actually have happening in this passage is really important for us to listen to today because it helps us define what our mission is as a church and it helps us understand what is meant by discipleship. There is a distinction made in these paragraphs between the crowd and the called. And that's the title of this sermon, The Crowd and the Called. And we'll start reading in Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 7, and we'll go all the way down to verse 19. This is what the Word of God says. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them to not make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonagerus, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is the very word of the living God. Crowds and the called. Uh, to be a part of a big group has various experiences. Sometimes you're just waiting in line and there's a big crowd. Uh, sometimes you're gathered for a distinct purpose uh, to enjoy entertainment, a concert, or something like that. But other times a crowd has a common interest in their minds and a problem. And that's the kind of crowd that we're seeing described in Mark chapter 3. And it's this crowd's interest in finding Jesus and their motivation for finding him that I think resonates with us today and helps us make a distinction between a large group of people who want to associate themselves with Jesus for various reasons and benefits and a select group of people who actually are following Jesus and doing what Jesus requires of them. That's the distinction in this passage. And what Jesus has experienced in all the controversy that he's faced is a winnowing of his followers. There's already been, in places like the Gospel of John, uh, some uh, identification of the crowd not being exactly what you'd think it would be. I mean, when we, when we think about our Sunday school lessons about Jesus and who he was and what he came to accomplish, we usually think of him with his disciples, and we know that there's 12 of those guys. But you understand that that group was much larger, and even the disciples had subsets within them. Uh, they're always named in particular order, and those three 
that are named at the front are the most prominent, Peter and James and John. And so there's an inner circle within the 12, and then there's also one of the 12 that's a crook, and we all know that about this story because we know how the story ends. But we also are aware that there is lots of of people associated with Jesus and considered his followers, his disciples. For example, Mary and Martha in John chapter 11 are, are sisters and their brother Lazarus are all close friends and followers of Jesus and all participants in his ministry. And that list grows as you read the Gospels of those who are closely associated with the Lord, men and women, people from lots of different backgrounds, tax collectors who are considered traitors to the Jewish people, and fishermen who are the most common of laborers, All these different kinds of people, some of them with a streak towards rebellion, like Simon the Zealot, and some of them that we know next to nothing about, like Thaddeus. Some so common to us that we can see their personality and their their characteristics, like Peter, and others that are virtually unknown. And so when we're looking at this passage, Mark is trying to show us that Jesus is forming something. Jesus is identifying a group within the crowd that will be the ones that carry on his mission. This is the start of something new, of something so significant and so elemental that it's an important moment in the gospel because what we're seeing happen here is the apostles, the one that will provide testimony to the crucifixion, resurrection, and life of Jesus are being called out and selected, and they're being sent and commissioned. And while their more formal commissioning is a few chapters away, this is where it all begins. It's this moment where Jesus begins to build his church and to inaugurate this new kingdom that will bring about God's plan for the ages. The Messiah is the center of it, not the disciples. The Messiah is the hero of this story, not these 12 or or 120 or, or larger group of followers. All of it centered on the mission and message of the Lord. But with this kind of moment of change in the Gospel of Mark, we receive instruction about what it means to be a real disciple. That it's different to just be a part of a crowd that is interested in Jesus, but it's something entirely different to be closely associated with the Lord and to be his disciple. And so I want you to be thinking in those two categories of what is the crowd and who are the called ones. So the crowd, let's, let's look first at, at what is made up of this crowd starting in verse 7. It says Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples. Uh, When that word is used following this section in Mark, it's always going to be a reference to the 12, to those 12 identified at the end of this passage. Here it's used, as in cases before Mark chapter 3, as the multitude of people, all the people that accompanied Jesus. And now they're identified in verse 7. They're called a great multitude. Likely thousands of people, thousands upon thousands of people from all different areas. And so they're from Galilee, and they followed him. And from Judea, and from Jerusalem, 
and from Edomia. That's where the Edomites were from. It's the settled kind of area of the descendants of Esau. But there was also Jewish people there and kind of half-breed Jews. And this passage doesn't say that these were only Jews. It seems like Jesus was obviously predominantly drawing Jewish people, but there was other people, Gentile people, interested in Jesus's ministry. And so from the south in Edomia and from, uh, it says the, the Transjordan, it's the area beyond the, the Jordan, it's the area towards the east and the vicinity of Tyre and, and Sidon, that's way up in the north on the Mediterranean coast, uh, you know what Israel looks like. Uh, those of you who are going to TMU will be forced to come to Grace Church in a few weeks and then forced to go to Israel in a few years. So just for now, I'll give you orientation. I've never been there, but there's a map at the back of my Bible. Uh, it's puddle, line, puddle. That's Israel, right? That's what it always looks like, puddle, line, puddle. And down at the south, you have Jerusalem, the capital city. And up at the north, you have Galilee, where Jesus was from and where so much of his ministry took place. If you look beyond that on the map, there's you have the Mediterranean Sea, where you have uh, Italy and Greece and, and all the 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 outcropping of Europe there. This is where the people came from. They came from this entire area, all flocking to Jesus, people from all over the place. And they wanted to be near him. And we start to see what this crowd was made of in uh, this description. It says, a great number of people heard, in verse eight, of all that he was doing and came to him. So these people are said to be following Jesus in a very literal way. In other words, where he would go, they would go. And they were coming to Jesus because they heard about what he had done. Things like the casting out of demons. Things like the healing of the sick. Remember, it was just a chapter ago in Mark that Jesus spent the entire night after the Sabbath, once Sabbath was over, into the wee hours of the morning, healing people's infirmities and diseases. It's so important to note that they didn't have Kaiser Permanente. They didn't have Tylenol or Advil or penicillin. I mean, the kinds of remedies they came up with would leave a person maimed. If you broke your arm in the ancient world in a severe way, you would likely never use that arm again. How many of you have broken a limb before? Raise your hand. Go ahead, be proud of your broken limb. Have you ever broken a limb? All those people, likely, which is about a third of the people in this room, would have been maimed for life. They would have lost the use of their arm or leg in large part. It would have healed uh, incorrectly. They didn't have the kind of technology or ability to uh, set a bone or, or certainly to go in there and screw things together. And when even common illnesses came, sometimes they were so difficult to deal with and the medical community so inept that people would become worse as a result of the ill treatment, the malpractice of Jesus's day. And so for Jesus to be healing people was extraordinary. I think we have a tendency in our day to think of the advances in medicine as so spectacular, and, and in many cases they are. We also have a tendency to think, uh, you know, the problems with our health and in this world are due to, you know, us not being natural enough. And so we think, you know, oh, if I, if I could get out of the city and breathe some good air and, and drink clean water and, 
you know, return to the agrarian society, I'd be a lot healthier as I eat a bag of potato chips. So Jesus's community is proof that nature will kill you. I mean, that's just how it was. People were sick and they were not getting better. People were maimed and broken and disabled. They had illnesses of all kinds. Mix with that the spiritual infirmities people faced. People had given themselves over to the devil. And there was something that looked to us like a mental illness, but to them looked like demon possession. And Jesus was able to delineate between those things. And when it was a demonic spiritual issue, he could cast out that demon and restore that person. And if it was a medical, uh, a chemical kind of issue, he could restore that person. Whether it was blindness or disability, Jesus had the power over disease and over the spiritual forces of darkness. And really, in some ways, those two things interlap, don't they? There is, because of the presence of sin in this world, demonic oppression. And because of the presence of sin in this world, there's death and disease. So really, Jesus is coming up against all that sin has caused in this world. And the people have no remedy. But suddenly, word spreads throughout the region, without Twitter, without the gram, without fake news. There's no way for people to disseminate this information except from chatting. And they chat Jesus up. They tell everybody what they've seen. And word so rapidly spreads that there is a powerful healer, a prophet from God, who is taking away infirmities. This isn't even considering the problems that Jesus faces in the gospel of John yet. So many people will flock to Jesus in John chapter six, mainly because he feeds them. Remember, this is a world without food stamps or EBT. This is a world of vast, unfathomable poverty, a world where a famine uh, or a drought, I mean, California has been in a drought for, I don't know, 500 years or something. If that happened in Palestine and when it happened in Palestine, people died. That's what the whole book of Ruth is about. And so this is a world that was a hard world to live in, a hard world to survive. And here you have someone who it was rumored could take away all your diseases, all your illnesses, a crippling back pain, an issue of hemorrhaging blood, a broken and withered and disabled arm, an inability to walk or paralysis. All of these things could be eradicated at the touch of this prophet from God. And so people heard this. Add to that that there's food on the menu. I mean, have you guys ever been to Grace Church on a Sunday night? It's a cool crowd. There's 1,500 people there. Have you ever been to Grace Church on a Sunday night when there's in and out? There's 10,000 people. Half people, half hogs. All there just, honk, 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 honk. is our food here tonight? Those people don't come when to come to church. They want in and out. Look, this isn't supposed to be like, you know, convicting to you unless it's convicting to you. So, People will flock to Jesus because of his power as a healer, because of his demonstrated superiority over the powers of darkness. 
and because of the food that he's going to provide for multitudes of people. And that's why the end of verse 8 says, a great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd so that they would not crush him. I think one of the reasons Jesus called fishermen is because they were so useful. They had boats at the ready. It's like a car, you know, warmed up outside and you can just jump into it and you get away. The crowd was so massive that the threat was Jesus would be trampled and crushed. People wanted to touch him. They wanted to be healed by him. The next verse says, because of the crowd, they would not crush him. Verse 10, that's the word literally crush. Verse 10, for he had healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions, and that's a general word for used in ancient literature for scourge or plague, basically anything sick about someone, pressed around him in order to touch him. So Jesus is actually in danger of getting smushed by this crowd of people. This massive group all looking to find remedy for their illnesses, for alleviation from the demonic. And they're pressing and pushing and coming from all over the surrounding world to get to Jesus. And The word used in verse 7 and in verse 9 is the word disciples. And as Mark uses this word in this passage, he begins to show a distinction between the massive crowd and these other people he's going to call mathetes, disciples. Now, this isn't easy for you to understand if you grew up in the church because that word discipleship is loaded, isn't it? Like, you know about discipleship. It's when your youth pastor buys you pizza. That's discipleship. You know about discipleship. It's when you and four girls from your dorm go to Starbucks on Wednesdays and read a book together, right? That's discipleship. And so because our Christian community has formalized discipleship to mean a meetup or you know, this person that really likes to confront everybody in their group or, or whatever. They're, they're, we have this like baggage we bring into our definition of discipleship. It's why this passage is more important than it appears on the surface. Because you have in mind a concept of discipleship, and I'd like this passage to clarify it for you. You see, discipleship is Christianity. It is not like a higher level of Christianity. It's not people who are in the pyramid scheme. It, it's not... Uh, some, some, something that you know, Starbucks came up with to, to sell uh, frappuccinos. Uh, it's, it's not what discipleship is. Discipleship is mathetes. It's a word that means learner or follower. And discipleship is a synonym. A disciple is a synonym for a follower of Christ. In our culture, discipleship is seen as separate from evangelism. We say, well, I want to lead this guy to faith, and then someone needs to disciple him. That is a completely unbiblical way to think about discipleship. Discipleship is evangelism in the Bible. Jesus says in Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples. The main verb being make, make disciples. Wherever you are, make disciples. That's the purpose of the church. Discipleship isn't a higher level Christianity. It's not when you go to the movies with your Christian friends rather than with your non-Christian friends. Uh, discipleship isn't some kind of controlling, forced you know, paradigm. Discipleship isn't, you know, if you didn't read your chapter, you're out. 
Uh, that's not discipleship. Discipleship in the Bible is being a follower of Jesus. It is a synonym for Christianity. It's a long process. It's inclusive of evangelism, of teaching, of helping, of training. It's relational. It's costly according to the Lord. It costs you everything. It's a commandment. It's not optional. It's motivated by love, and there's lots of different expressions. So what does this word disciple mean? Mathetes. We're about to meet 12 of them, but what does it mean? Here's a good definition from the the good folks at BDAG. One who engages in learning through instruction from another, a pupil or an apprentice, or one who is constantly associated with someone who has a pedagogical reputation, a teacher, or a particular set of views, a disciple, an adherent. Listen to the words of Jesus in Luke 6, verse 40. The mathetes, the disciple, is not above the didaskalon, the teacher. But everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Or in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, in a few chapters, calling the crowd to him with his disciples. And Mark loves to make that contrast as he's doing here. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples. He said to them, if anyone who would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. A follower of Jesus one who commits his life to being a part of Jesus' kingdom, is a disciple. A good definition of discipleship from Mark Dever, who could grow a beard in five minutes. I like Mark Dever. I've slept in his house, and this is what I learned from him. One, you got to shave at least three times a day if you're Mark Dever. Two, he has a great definition of discipleship. Are you ready for it? Helping others follow Jesus. Helping others follow Jesus. It's simple. He goes on to say, deliberately doing spiritual good to someone so that he or she will be more like Christ. And in that, we start to understand what's going on in this passage. Jesus is calling out from the crowd. You see, there's lots of people following Jesus for lots of reasons. And this is so important to understand for our ministry here in Crossroads. What we're trying to do here is not have like a version of church where we can chuck birds at people. That's not the goal. It's just a side benefit. What we're trying to do here is not like have rowdier church or younger church or or something like that. What we're doing here is something very strategic in our ministry to college students and young adults. I believe that the 20s are such an important Uh, and defining time in your life from that 18 to 29, you're going to make so many choices in your life that are going to shape and impact the entirety of your life. And so our priority in Crossroads is overlapping with what the purpose of our church is. It's to specifically provide discipleship. And that doesn't necessarily mean a program that everybody joins and it looks the exact same way. It means that we want to help you follow Jesus. We want to help you do deliberately spiritual good so that you will be more like your Savior. That's our purpose in this ministry. And that's what Jesus is setting before this crowd and these closer followers as we see the motives and the distinctions between the two. That's why in verse 10, after talking about him healing many who had diseases, pressing around to touch him, it wasn't physical proximity to Jesus that made you a disciple. 
It wasn't that you could reach out and grab him or knew what he looked like or had a conversation with him. Otherwise, Judas would be all in. The difference between someone associated with Jesus kind of largely and someone who actually is a disciple of Jesus has everything to do with motive. It has everything to do with motive. You see, these people wanted Jesus to fix them. They they wanted their arms to work. They wanted their bellies full. They, They wanted to be relieved of their troubles. And we can all understand that. But there's Two kingdoms happening here, and that's on display in verse 11. There's something going on here that's beyond the physical, something spiritual happening. And that's why in verse 11, after talking about the people wanting their diseases healed, it says, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, you are the son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. The presence of the crowd in the gospel of Mark is always going to be abbreviated by the oppression of the demonic. There's always going to be this this particular focus that just because there's people gathered around Jesus or pressing around Jesus, it does not mean that they belong to him. In John chapter 2, verse 28, it says that there was a big crowd pressing towards Jesus, and it says that he did not entrust himself to them. Many believed in Jesus, John 2, 28. But Jesus in turn did not entrust or believe in them because he knew the heart of every man. That's a profound analysis that Jesus has of every human heart. He knows what you're there for. He knows why you've come here today. Maybe it was to please your grandparent or your parent that you would come to church today. Maybe it was because, you know, there's people of, of the opposite gender here in this room and you're, you're very interested in these things. Maybe you're here because, I don't know, it's better than being alone or on Zoom your whole life. So whatever your reasons might be, I hope you understand that Jesus knows exactly why you're here. That he has an omniscience towards the human heart that has a perfect knowledge of, of who you are and why you have come to him. It's why Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1.8, though you don't see him, you love him. He commended disciples who had not seen Jesus with their physical eyes, but they loved him anyway. You see, they weren't pursuing Jesus for that benefit of the physical, but they understood there was a spiritual dynamic that was darkness versus light. That was the kingdom of Satan versus the kingdom of God. And that's why Jesus in verse 11, verse 12, would not let the demons speak of him. They were not to be his ambassadors. He had other ambassadors in mind. And that moves us to verse 13. And so Jesus goes up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 so that they could be with him and he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the 12. Repeatedly in this passage, he uses that number 12. And it's not just because there was 12 of them. There's a reason there's 12 of them. I could ask you how many senators we have, and I hope you know in the United States we have a number of senators. (laughs) And I could ask you how many representatives we have, and you know we have a number of representatives. And 
all together. Some of you might know that are studying, you know, governance or something like that, poli-sci, that there are 535 people who make up the legislative and representative body that we like to call Congress, right? Now, most of us know something about that. Two centers from every state, I think. I think it makes 100. So, but, you know, it's different when it comes to the state government, for example. You know, how many, how many senators, state senators are there? I don't know. It's like 40 or something. And like 39 of them are Democrats. I'm, not, I'm just saying. That's what, what it is. So you may know those numbers like that, or you may not. When an Israelite hears that Jesus is appointing 12, they freeze in their tracks. There's a lot of significant numbers in the Old Testament. The number 40 is significant. The number 7 is significant. There's, there's all manner of significant numbers used to represent various things in the Bible. And you don't want to ride the numbers too hard or you get weird. But 12 isn't very common. 12 points at one thing in the Old Testament. What is it? What was that? Como se dice? Sorry, I'm elderly. You have to speak louder. What are there 12 of in the Old Testament? Tribes. Yeah, let's go. Tribes. There's 12 tribes in the Old Testament. Based on the 12 sons of Israel. You see, Jacob's 12 sons became 12 tribes, but for hundreds of years, they have been dispersed and forgotten. Ever since the Babylonian captivity, there's been a lot of confusion about who belongs to what tribe. And lots of Israelites were trying to sort it out, but it was impossible to sort it out with Rome being all over the people with the Herodians scattering them, with persecution, and with no ability to control their own national sovereignty, the 12 tribes had mostly disappeared. There was kind of two that hung around, and people just weren't sure anymore where they belonged. Things were a mess when it came to Israel. God had a nation. It had 12 tribes. And in the end of God's plan in the book of Revelation, there will once again be that number 12 featured prominently in the establishment of his eternal kingdom. And so when Jesus says, I'm appointing 12, everybody knew something significant was happening. And for him to choose these 12 was to say something about his plan for the kingdom to come. There was something political about it. There was something spiritual about it. But more than anything else, there was something brand new. And when we look at this passage, it teaches us something about those who had followed Jesus, what their role was, and what they were supposed to do in bringing about Jesus' new kingdom. And that's what we'll look at next week. Father, thank you for your word. And we all want to learn to follow you in love and obedience. We want to learn to imitate Jesus and replicate what he's called us to do. And so help us, God, to trust the Lord and to follow him in all his ways. 
Help us in these coming weeks as we look at the gospel of Mark to have a a better understanding of what it means to be a kingdom disciple and to understand who it is that we proclaim and represent. Teach us how to sit under your teaching, how to correct one another, how to model a life that's dedicated to Jesus, how to love one another, and how to be humble. Help us to be true disciples of King Jesus. In his name, amen.